Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing Father Aiden Kimmel. Father Aiden is an Orthodox priest who runs the active and astute theological blog, Eclectic Orthodoxy. I've had the honor of meeting Father Aiden and having dinner in his home and hosting him and his wife at my home for dinner and discussion. And so Father Aiden, friend and fellow priest, welcome to The Sacramentalist. Well, thank you very much, Father Miles. Uh, delighted to be uh, with you and Father Wesley and, uh, and delighted to be able to talk about the greater hope or the universal salvation. Yes, absolutely. And so, yes, we've asked you, Father Aiden, to be on the show today, as you just alluded to, um, for our season on difficult theological and biblical topics. And anyone who spends just a few moments looking at your blog and your topics of theological interest will find out quickly that you are a uh, devout, if that's the right word, Christian universalist. And so we've asked you to come on and talk with us about theology, scripture, church tradition, and as you said, the greater hope that we can have. And so we're just going to jump right into this. Let's begin by defining terms. What do we mean when we say universalism? Universalism claims that every human being who has ever existed and will exist will be ultimately reconciled to God and will enjoy everlasting bliss in his kingdom. Simply put, uh, all will be saved in and through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. So I don't know you quite as well as Father Miles does. I've been an avid reader of your blog for quite some time, um, but I personally, we never connected. Um, I, I wish we had when I was in Roanoke, but um, how personally did you come to confess what you would call larger or greater hope? Well, uh, that's a great question and uh, an important question for me personally. Uh, and I hope uh, it's a, my answer is going to be it's somewhat long. Uh, so please be patient because this begins for me uh, when I entered seminary. Well, actually, it begins after I graduated from college in 1975 when I returned to Washington, D.C. I began attending. Uh, St. Paul's Episcopal Church on K Street, which is, uh, at least was, one of the great Anglo-Catholic parishes in the Episcopal Church. Father James Daughtry was the rector. He took me under his wing. One of the first things he began to, uh, uh, he signed me a, a monthly confession. So I began to make my confession. After several months, I remember remarking to him uh, at the conclusion of uh, one of our sessions, I said, Father, I just keep com committing the same sins. And he smiled and said, well, of course, what did you expect? Well, that became for me a, an existential question regarding God's forgiveness. It seemed like after uh, receiving absolution within 25 minutes or 15 minutes, I just wiped out my absolution. And, and so the question became, what does the love and forgiveness of God mean? 
And I brought that question with me when I began seminary, 1977, went to Neshota House in Wisconsin. And very surprisingly, I ran into, not because it was, they were assigned uh, by my professors, I'm not even sure how I discovered them, but I ran into some theologians, the writings of theologians that addressed this question for me in a very powerful way. They were James B. Torrance and Thomas F. Torrance, two Reformed theologians, and the uh, great Lutheran theologian, Robert W. Jensen. Now, somehow, I came across this piece, an early piece in an obscure journal that's no longer uh, active, titled The Unconditional Freeness of Grace. I guess I must have run into this in the library. I don't know. Uh, but the, the title grabbed me, and I read it. In it, Torrance contrasts a a contractual or legalist understanding of grace, which he always puts into an if-then statement. If you repent, then you will be forgiven. And contrasted that with an unconditional or covenantal understanding of grace, which he always puts in a because therefore statement. Because Jesus died and rose again, Therefore, you are forgiven. Therefore, repent. Uh, and I guess this is the, the, the fallacy of legalism in all ages, to turn God's covenant of grace into a contract. To say that if God will only love and forgive us if uh, we fulfill prior conditions. Torrance argues that in the Bible, the form of the covenant is such that the indicatives of grace are prior to the obligations of law and human obedience. Legalism, of course, puts it all the other way around. If you keep the law, if you truly believe, if you fulfill such and such or do such and such, God will love you and forgive you and give you his spirit. Salvation then is reduced to a transaction. God does his part by offering the gift, and we must do our part. And that, you see, was what was precisely with what I was struggling with at a very deep personal level. I mean, what do I have to do to earn God's forgiveness? Now, Robert Jensen, uh, right at the same time I discovered his book, Lutheranism, uh, don't ask me why I was reading Lutherans in a high Episcopal church uh, seminary, but I was. I started to. And in that book, Jensen wrote the following. I have to read, the, read this because uh, it was very important to me, for me at the time. Quote, according to the Reformation insight and discovery, the gospel is a wholly unconditional promise of the human fulfillment of its hearers, made by the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel, rightly spoken, involves no ifs, ands, buts, 
or maybes of any sort. It does not say, if you do your best to live a good life, God will fulfill that life. Or if you fight on the right side of the great issues of your time, or if you repent, or if you believe, it does not even say, if you want to do good, repent, believe, or if you are sorry for not wanting to do good, repent, believe. And here's the crucial sentence. The Reformation's first and last assertion was that any talk of Jesus and God and the human life that does not transcend all conditions is a perversion of the gospel and will be at best irrelevant in the lives of hearers and at worst destructive. Now, all I can tell you is that was, that was a converting moment for me. That jumped out at me and it spoke deep to the depths of my heart. And I said, this has to be true. God's love is unconditional. Now, what that means, you know, we can talk about that, but I found that totally powerful, very powerful. And it, from that point on, I was committed to preaching this understanding of the gospel. So in one sense, if you want to say it, that's when, that's how my journey toward the greater hope uh, began. Yes, sir. That doesn't strike me as terribly surprising. I mean, reading uh, Reformed and Lutheran theologians at Neshota House might be a little bit, but um, the understanding that you arrived at seems to me to be basically what we pray in the prayer of humble access every Sunday, that his property is always to have mercy. And anything that we do is always responsive to that. It very much strikes me as the covenantal understanding that you're talking about rather than the contractual one. So liturgically, we play that out week after week after week. Right. But the question then becomes, what about hell? If God's love is unconditional, absolute, infinite, unqualified, what about hell? And so that became, as I entered into the ordained ministry and began preaching Sunday after Sunday, that became an important question I had to answer. And I found the easy answer in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. The damner invited uh, to come take a bus ride up to heaven. They're invited to stay. And uh, they choose to go back. Well, that's their problem. That's their free choice. And that was, you know, became my catechetical answer to all questions of perdition. Uh, because that always is, is raised when, when we talk about uh, God as unconditional love. Uh, Lewis put it this way in his uh, The Problem of Pain, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I was satisfied that for, with that for a long time. Uh, in the 90s, I read Baltazar's May We Hope That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, it's just a short step from Lewis's to Baltazar's Greater Hope. You know, it's Sure, uh, the doors are locked from the inside, but maybe God will find a way to persuade the damned to turn the lock. And then finally in 2011, 
that's only, what, that's uh, 10 years ago, I guess. I read a book by the evangelical philosopher Thomas Talbot titled The Inescapable Love of God. And he persuaded me that, uh, that we may take another step beyond a hopeful universalism to a very confident universalism. Well, very cool. Thank you for letting us kind of come in on that theological journey. I know that so many of our listeners are going through various theological journeys, whether related to this issue or a dozen other issues. And so it's always insightful to see how someone takes years and years to prepare and arrive at a position. So now that you're at what you just called this confident universalist position, wondering if you could maybe um, tell us what you believe are the strongest theological arguments then in support of universal salvation. I'm sure glad that you gave me a heads up you were going to ask me that question. Um, but I have, a, I have uh, four arguments that I, I'd like to share. Uh, one is, is, is simply what I, we've already been talking about, the argument from the unconditionality of the divine love. If God loves humanity unconditionally, then he will not take our no as our final answer. The Father of Jesus Christ never ceases to will our salvation. I mean, that's what it means to say God's love is unconditional. Uh, therefore, it's inconven uh, inconceivable, I would argue, that the God of absolute love, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, would create a world that terminates in the everlasting torment of even one of his creatures. Uh, if he did create such a world, then our confession of God as absolute love is disproven. St. Isaac the Syrian puts it, quote, it is not the way of the compassionate maker to create rational beings in order to deliver them over mercilessly to unending affliction and punishment for things of which he knew even before they were fashioned, aware how they would turn out when he created them and whom nonetheless he created. Succinctly, if there's a hell, then God is not absolute and unconditional love. Second argument, the argument from God's creation of human beings in the divine image. I take it that one thing being created in the divine image means is that every human being is created for God as their supreme and final good. We have a natural and ineradicable desire and hunger for union with the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're not created as neutral beings as it will and then who then have to kind of discover God and decide whether we want to have anything to do with it. We are created with a desire for God, an orientation and determination toward God, toward the divine. If that is true, and I think that that goes right, right way back into the early church fathers, then the following consequence may be drawn. 
At no point may we conclude that sinners can so clothe them, themselves off to God that even he cannot raise them into repentance, faith, and love. This is a crucial point because the argument for eternal salvation depends upon the claim that we can so, um, well, I, I want to say close them out ourselves off to God, but become like stone that we cannot even hear God's voice. There, there's that wonderful scene right at the end of, of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, where um, Aslan uh, wars at this group of sinful dwarves and they cannot hear his roar. Uh, that's what damnation is. And yet, if my, this argument is, is true uh, and sound, then that presupposition cannot be sound. We cannot close ourselves off to God. Um, no matter how hard we try, he always has an opening. So I, actually, so I actually did have one question at this juncture, and maybe I, I don't know if I'll articulate this the best way. Um, it seems like on this particular question, we get into questions about free will, free choice, et cetera, right? Because we're saying at no, at no point can a person be so closed off from God that, that he can't raise them up to repentance. Now, on the one hand, I think that's correct. On the other hand, I've always kind of struggled with this because I, I, here's where the odd moment of, of universalism and Calvinism seem to sort of intersect a little bit as, mm -hmm. far, as, um, as far as divine election is concerned. And I guess one of the problems I've always had with Calvinism comes from uh, thinkers like uh, Herbert McCabe, um, who would say that the, uh, the issue in a lot of those circles is that it McCabe sort of makes God is a, a will. Is a Roman Catholic, not and Thomas, not a uh, not a Calvinist. Just exactly. Just... No, he's he's critical of Calvinism though, on right. the grounds that it makes God's will competitive with human will, as if the, as if his is a will among wills. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm wondering how, from a universalist perspective, we avoid that problem. It, as far as like, like McCabe would say, we, God can't interfere with our wills because talking about him as interfering posits him on the same plane as, um, as the person he's interfering with. Like in football, you have to have two equal players to have pass interference. You know, um, so I guess I'm just wondering how we kind of skirt around that issue or, or how we would answer that objection, um, because I, I want to agree with everything you're saying. And I, I think you're right about more than you're not right about, for sure. It's just this one problem has always given me a little bit of a, a pause. Well, first of all, it depends uh, whether you want to skirt around that. <laughs> if you're, you're a Thomist and a Calvinist. Um, and you believe in absolute predestination, and I bet you some of your listeners are, fall into that camp, then the problem is solved for universalism. God predestines, elects every human being to eternal salvation. Uh, how does he do that? Well, Thomists would talk about efficacious grace. 
And that takes us into a, an area I'm not prepared at the moment to, to expound on. Uh, if we don't want to do that, as I guess you don't, then all we have to do is lift the time limit. You know, it's traditionally, the, and particularly in the Western church, not in the Eastern church, but particularly in the Western church, death is the time limit. We have up to the moment of death to determine our orientation toward God, our final option, are we for him or against him? And at that moment, we are either rewarded with rewarded with everlasting uh, salvation and bliss, or we are condemned to eternal punishment. Well, what if we take off, you know, lift that? And of course, we don't know what we're talking about. All we're saying is there is no limit to what God can do after death. And that seems to have been what um, Origen and St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Saint, Saint Isaac of Nineveh uh, appear to have done. I mean, they were not determinists uh, in, any, in any way. But they didn't see a problem between free will and final salvation. Does that help? That helps a lot. And and just to clarify, I would I would kind of um, if if we think about this on a spectrum, I mean, we certainly have a sort of a, a free will position kind of on the far end and a hard determinism on the other. I was coming at it from a position that sees McCabe kind of right in the middle there as a compatibilist. So I don't think he uh, embraces some of the hard predestination that some Thomists do. He's kind of in the middle there and. Um, and he wants to both acknowledge God's sort of control um, without him interfering. And so it's kind of an interesting argument from his perspective, which is why I asked the question. But I think you're right. And I think there's even ground in the Western tradition to at least create some inroads here, even though maybe um, maybe they, the thinkers themselves don't go that far, like Bernard of Clairvaux's on grace and free choice, or even some of Anselm's work, I think actually kind of gets us to where we can make some of the jumps that you're you're saying we can it's just the western tradition has never fully gone all the way let, let me also um suggest that we we don't need the answer i didn't come to confess the greater hope because someone gave me the answer on predestination and grace and free will and determinism I began and with, an, with a conviction that God is absolute love. Therefore, he'll find a way. I don't need to know the answer to believe that. I just need to give myself over to it, and as a priest, to preach it. Uh, third argument. Now, this is, this is going to require uh, some time because it's an important argument, and it's a recent argument that was advanced in 2015 by David Bentley Hart at a um, conference in Notre Dame. Uh, he delivered a lecture, 
It was titled God, Creation, and Evil, The Moral Meaning of Creatio Ex Nihilo. And a few months after that, it was uh, published online in the Radical Orthodoxy Journal. Uh, your listeners can easily find it on the web. Uh, this is my summary of the argument. This is my words for the most part. Uh, David has never told me I got this right. <laughs> as far as I think I have, uh, but uh, if he later, you know, uh, this is me, you know, uh, putting, uh, trying to uh, articulate his argument, but I think it's very important. Number one, Hart asserts that the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, the creation of the universe from out of nothing, asserts the absolute liberty of the creator in all his acts. As the infinite plenitude of being, God does not need to, to create the universe to fulfill something within himself. There's nothing lacking in God. Uh, he doesn't need to create the world or human beings to find his happiness and bliss. He is already infinite bliss in the uh, community of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, he therefore has absolute freedom to create or not to create and freedom to create the specific cosmos or universe that he does. He's not subject to any constraints outside himself. Secondly, God eternally wills himself as the good, and his willing of the cosmos is encompassed within this eternal self-willing. Now, what that that's a, a that's kind of a, a difficult thing to, to, to say. Uh, what that means, I, what I'm meaning, what I believe he means is that the purpose. The, the end and goal of the creation is good and its movement toward the good. Um, in the language of Aristotle, God is the final cause of creation. The cosmos is created by love for consummation in love. Three, God does not create evil. I'm just going to stop right there and just well, say, okay, that, that's all. I don't need to expand. God does not create evil, period. Four, the eschaton, that end toward which all of creation is moving in which we confess will be accomplished in and by Jesus Christ, will reveal necessarily and definitively the character and identity of the creator. Uh, the conclusion of the story can neither surprise nor disappoint God. For the conclusion is willed in the initial act of creation. And that this is the critical point for Hart's argument. The end is in the beginning. The beginning is the end. Uh, in Hart's words, quote, God could not be the creator of anything substantially evil 
without evil also being part of the definition of who he essentially is. This is the crucial Hardian claim. If everlasting perdition belongs to the climax of the cosmic narrative, then it was so intended by God from the beginning. If hell was intended, then we have to find a way to say that hell is good and inheres in the good. If hell is intended, then hell becomes God. Most of us don't see, you know, haven't thought that far along, you know, we just say, well, that's, un you know, that's unfortunate, there's a hell. Uh, the damned choose their, their destiny, and God makes provision. Uh, but of course, when we say that, we're, we're kind of putting God in time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's as if God creates the universe and says, well, let's see how it turns out. Uh, let's, I'm hoping that there will be some saints, but I don't know if there will or not. I'm hoping people will, will embrace my goodness, but, um, you know, we'll just have to see. And then at the end, we find, well, there's, there's a number of people who have become wicked. So I have no other choice but to damn them. What Hart's argument does, in other words, is makes very clear that if there's a hell, if at the end of the cosmic story, end of the, the biblical narrative, if there is hell, then God intended that at the very beginning of the story. And that's when uh, then Hart uh, advances an argument from of incoherence. He says we, you know, Orthodox Christianity traditionally has made the following three claims. Number one, God freely created the cosmos ex nihilo. Number two, God is the good and wills only the good. And three, God will condemn a portion of his creatures to everlasting torment. Art says, we may affir logically affirm any two of these claims without contradiction. What we cannot do is affirm all three simultaneously. Now, I've, you know, since, uh, since Hart published his book, That All Shall Be Saved, a few years ago, you know, I, I've read as much as I could all the responses online and in journals to his book. Not a single reviewer, not a single one, has mentioned this argument. They just skip over it. Well, what can you say? I don't know, but it, it, it's a crucial argument. I'll stop right there. I've got one more argument, but I don't know if we have time for it. We have time, and I do think that is probably the strongest of the arguments in the in the book for sure. It's so good. Uh, it and I don't know of an answer to it. It's uh, all I know is that the proponents of everlasting damnation not only do they uh, not grapple with the argument or offer a refutation of it, they don't even mention it 
in their reviews or in their discussion of this. And as I said, I've read a bunch. The final argument, uh, very briefly, uh, but this is a personal argument for me. Uh, it's been called the argument from God's love for the blessed. If we truly love someone, if we truly will their good, if we love them as we love ourselves, and if they should be damned, how can their interminable misery not affect and impact our enjoyment of heaven? Now, I first encountered this argument or this formulation in Talbot's book, which I've already mentioned. Uh, and at the time, it didn't make a serious impression upon me. It was, uh, in fact, it reminded me of, of uh, again, of the, the great divorce. And if you know that, you know that the scenario of the, of, oh, what's her name? A lady who's married to the, to the actor the tragedian you remember and he tries to use all sorts of self-pity upon her but his misery does not impact her um, her happiness and joy and the narrator who's lewis uh, asks his mentor george mcdonald about that and basically mcdonald says well um the sufferings of the damned cannot affect the blessed Otherwise, they would be holding, uh, holding us in, in hostages, as hostages. Uh, okay, well, that, you know, that, that was fine until 2012, uh, on, June, on June 15th, my second son, Aaron, died. Aaron was an atheist. Uh, or he called himself an agnostic. It's not that at that time I was deep, you know, um, that I was worried about his salvation because I'd already become convinced that the end of each of our destinies will be good. But the question, you know, came at me with an intensity. Um, could there, could I ever be satisfied, you know, assuming that I'm, you know, find myself in heaven and, and gifted with that, could I ever be happy knowing that my son or any a friend, a relative, uh, my parents, siblings, or strangers, knowing that they were suffering everlastingly? Could I be enjoy the fullness of divine life? And after my son died, the answer was immediate. No, absolutely not. Uh, so if that, you know, if this argument is sound, uh, if God intends perfect bliss and joy for the blessed, Therefore, we may infer that he wills the eternal salvation of all. And those are the four arguments that I find most compelling. Thank you for sharing all of those. I, I think 
I think they're all very strong arguments and certainly ones that people who aren't universalists need to seriously grapple with, particularly that third argument, because you're right, I've read a lot of the reviews of, of Hart's book, and they will attack him on most of his other arguments, but that one is is always unanswered, and you're, you're exactly right. So obviously, um, we have our theological arguments, um, and those are important, but also uh, synthesizing the witness of the scriptures is also uh, uh, something that we have to do. So where in scripture and sort of in the traditional reading of scripture through the church, do you find the most compelling evidence for universal salvation? Well, I just so happen to have four texts. Uh, do you want me to quote them or just? Please. Okay. Okay. I've got four texts and um, universally, universals always turn to the apostle Paul first. Uh, we're convinced he was, if not an explicit universalist, was certainly on a universalist trajectory when he was writing. Uh, first, Romans 5, 18 through 19. Now I'm going to be quoting from the David Bentley Hart translation, just in case your, your listeners uh, have not uh, read any of that translation. Quote, so then, just as by one transgression unto condemnation for all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness, under rectification of life for all human beings, for just as by the heedlessness of the one man, the many were rendered sinners, Adam, so also by the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be rendered righteous. Now, in all these texts that I'm going to be quoting, I'm just going to suggest, you know, hear them in, the, in its plainness. I mean, without the qualifications that we always bring to these texts, you know, just like if you were hearing this for the first time, would you not conclude that Paul is saying all will be saved? So Paul says, you know, it's uh, just as in Adam, by Adam, through Adam, all were made sinners. Uh, so also by the obedience of the new Adam, all will be made righteous. Sounds plain. Romans 11, 30 to 32. For even as you once did not trust in God, but have now received mercy through their mistrust. So they now also have not trusted to the end that by the mercy shown you, they now also might receive mercy. For God shut up everyone in obstinacy so that he might show mercy to everyone. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now this is, I, I couldn't find a way to cut out any of the verses. So it's 20 to 28, it's a long text. Uh, this was, I think, in the early church, one of the most important texts, say for Origen and St. Gregory of Nyssa. But now the anointed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death comes through, through a man, resurrection of the, of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in the anointed, all will be given life. 
and each in their proper order, the anointed as the first fruits, thereafter those who are in the anointed at his arrival, then the full completion when he delivers the kingdom to him who is God and Father, when he renders every principality and every authority and power ineffectual. For he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy rendered ineffectual is death. For he subordinated all things beneath his feet. But when it says all things have been subordinated beneath his feet, it is clear that this does not include the one who has subordinated all things to him. And when all things have been subordinated to him, then will the son himself also be subordinated to the one who has subordinated all things to him so that God may be all in all. Uh, as I said, for Origen and Gregory and other universalists in the, in the uh, patristic period, God may be all in all. Um, they took that as meaning that there cannot be a hell. Evil itself will be eradicated. God is triumphant. Now, you can give a, an annihilationist uh, rendering to that, if you will, but uh, I don't know how you reconcile that. Simple declaration, God may be all in all with the presence of, the, of everlasting damnation. Finally, 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 5. This is a good and acceptable thing before our Savior God, who intends all human beings to be saved. He intends all human beings. I mean, other translation, he wills all human beings. Oh, we, can, we desire all you know, all human beings to be saved. Of course, what God, God desires, God wills. He's not like us. Um, and to come to a full knowledge of truth. For there is one God and also one mediator of God in human beings. A human being, the anointed one, Jesus, who gave himself as a liberation fee for all persons. Now, you know, there are any, I mean, uh, countless number of more texts that uh, I or any other universalist can, can um, cite. Uh, but of course, infernalists, those who uh, advocate eternal damnation, and, and excuse me, annihilationists also have their own respective lists. I mean, that's just the way scripture is, right? Um, it's similar to the way um, to Calvinists and, and Arminians. You know, they each have their favorite texts uh, to support their views on predestination, and uh, they have their interpretations of, of those texts. And so there's ongoing debate, and neither side can persuade the other. And that, <laughs> that itself is very crucial, I think. Uh, if you just come to the Bible, and see, I'm Orthodox now, so it's, uh, uh, we read scripture differently than a lot of Protestants do, but if we just come to the Bible and looking at verse after verse, and kind of like, what is its plain meaning, and then we find contradictory things, and we, we wrestle with how do you reconcile the two texts. It was back in the late 80s, I started studying um, with Robert Jensen at Gettysburg Seminary, 
uh, I was a you know active priest, but I would drive up uh, once a week to attend classes with him and uh, talk to him. And I had back at that time I was still wrestling with uh, how do you reconcile the Bible with the unconditionality of the divine love? How do you reconcile the Bible with Jensen's understanding of justification by faith? After all, there are plenty of scriptures that would seem to support justification by works. And he smiled at me and he said, go back and read the Bible. Um, that's when I, I began to realize that we need to read, we need a hermeneutic, if you will, uh, a paradigm or a lens through which we may read and make sense of scripture. Uh, you know, why do I believe that God is unconditional love as opposed to conditional love? I think that's biblical. I believe and confess it's biblical that it is the truth of scripture. But I didn't come at that just by comparing verses. There's something about the reading of scripture and the reading of the tradition and the preaching of the gospel that you receive an insight, if you will, into the meaning of the whole. And you bring that insight with you then to your reading and interpretation of scripture. Now, I call this a hermeneutic of Pascha. Uh, when we read the Bible Christianly, rather than just as a historical artifact, we read it through our prior faith in the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I call it the hermeneutic of Pascha. I've also called it the hermeneutic of absolute love. But that's how I have read the Bible and how I have preached the gospel um, through 30 something, you know, well, now 40 years since my ordination. But uh, that's great. That's Thank how you. I do it. Thank you. And that's how yeah. I commend you, you two priests to do it. You know, yeah, that, and, and you, you're, you're absolutely right. You have to have a hermeneutic, any sort of like solo scriptura version of approaching the Bible just doesn't work, doesn't make sense of history. So with that hermeneutic you have, Father Aiden, I guess we have a kind of the, the obvious question is how does a universalist then make sense of these biblical passages that seemingly speak of eternal destruction? I know you have a few that talk about the eternal smoke rising up before God of the damned who are, who are burning in, in the lake of fire. So yeah, just speak to us about those. Hmm. You know, when you read the Bible through the spectacles of Pascha, all those difficult passages that come to mind read very differently. And uh, I don't think we want to go through all of those one by one, but let's, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the one text that always jumps out is Jesus's parable of the last judgment in Matthew 25. Now, according to all the popular translations from the New Testament, 
Jesus states explicitly that the wicked will be condemned to eternal punishment and the righteous will be rewarded with eternal life. That's like the, uh, the, the, the proof text, right? But as you know, the Greek word used by Jesus is ionios, uh, from the substantive ion, age. Now, ionius uh, or ionion enjoys a wide semantic range. Eternal is not its primary meaning. In most cases, uh, in both the, uh, in the Greek Septuagint uh, and in, in the classical literature, the adjective indicates either a finite or indefinite period of time. Also, the word can be used either quantitatively or qualitatively. That is to say, in this text, the adjective may simply denote realities that belong or pertain to the eschaton. I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm just offering a, um, a wider way for us to interpret this specific text. It's not as clear as say the RSV or the NIV or the King James Version makes it out to be. Uh, to quote David Hart's translation of the last concluding verse of the parable, and these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Uh, David is not, simply, is not coming up with a translation that is uh, compatible with his universalism. He's just dealing with the Greek, and he is giving us a, an alternative reading of the parable but you won't get that from most English translations. Uh, I'm not a biblical exegete. I don't know Greek. Uh, you know, let me just put my cards on the table. So I'm not gonna, I can't go get nitty gritty with you on many of the other uh, texts, the difficult texts, but universalists who know their Bible, well, not me, but others, yeah. They've, they've got answers that may or may not prove uh, persuasive, but they have ways of dealing with it. And the important thing is every reading of the Bible, and you, know, you always have difficult texts, whether you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian, or you're a universalist and an annihilationist and an infernalist, there are always gonna be texts that are problems for your, uh, for your system. And that's why I think what you said earlier was so good that when you come to the text, you're always coming with presuppositions or lenses that you read these other things through. And as my Greek professors in seminary would say, if your entire theological position hangs upon the, a specific meaning of a specific word or set of words, that just, that just doesn't cut it. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, establish a strong enough doctrine. You really need this larger framework of what they would have, I was at a more or less a Protestant seminary, but they were trying to say tradition, history of hermeneutics, and understanding of the gospel that you then come into the text. So I think what you said is, is good, and it's honest that there are texts that are hard and difficult, no matter where you fall on multiple theological camps or lines. But that's the, not that those are secondary questions, but they become questions that are after the fact, once one is theologically and rationally convinced of a position. 
I mean, my belief that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as defined by the Nicene Creed is not dependent upon a particular reading of a particular verse. I read the entirety of scripture through, uh, through the Trinitarian dogma as defined by Nicaea and Constantinople. Uh, if you're Unitarian, you're gonna, you're gonna say, well, you're not reading the Bible as it is. And I, I concede that, you know, I'm, the Trinity is my hermeneutic. So on this topic, I think it kind of dovetails into the next question that we had, which is about the reception history of universalism. Um, so we can think of a number of universalists, particularly in the early church. Um, Origen is probably the most infamous of uh, thinkers <laughs> on this topic. Now, I, I love Origen. I'll go to bat for Origen any day. I took a class on Origen with John Baer at uh, Neshota House, and it was one of my favorite classes that I've taken. So I'm a big Origen fan. Um, however, um, could you speak a little bit to the kind of rocky reception universalism has gotten in the church? and in that, maybe um, maybe explain how a universalist would respond to those who would claim the position is condemned at the ecumenical Fifth Ecumenical Council when Origenism was condemned. Right. You know, it's funny. Most Christians today would believe that the doctrine of everlasting damnation represents the earliest teaching of the church from the apostolic period on. And somehow this novelty of, of universal salvation gets invented, in, say, in the third century. That's not the case, though. Um, we have clear evidence that in the, say, in the second century, uh, Christians were teaching Annihilationism, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus are often cited as proponents of that. We have infernalism. Tertullian is perhaps the most uh, obvious example, and universalism. And we see that this in being taught in the Apocalypse of Peter, which was very popular and considered by many to be an inspired text. In the third century, the universalist thesis is taken up by Clement of Alexandria and by Origen of Alexandria. In the fourth century, universalists included Eusebius of Caesarea and Marcellus of Ancyra, both present at the Council of Nicaea and St. Gregory of Nyssa and Diodor of Antioch, both present at the Council of Constantinople, both appointed by the emperors as protectors or guardians of the council and its creed. At no point, and this is the important, at no point during the third through fifth centuries did any of the bishops of the church convene a synod to condemn those who profess the greater hope. And that includes Origen and St. Gregory of Nyssa. Origen was condemned or criticized for any sorts of, for many different reasons, often misunderstandings. But no one criticized or repudiated him because he was a universalist. 
Um, well, I, I need to qualify that. That, I mean, at the synodical level. In the City of God, St. Augustine's City of God, he has a long discussion of the misery cordis, the compassionate ones, uh, uh, who comes from under his uh, severe criticism. Uh, imagine being criticized for being compassionate. So he condemns Origen for teaching the salvation of the demons. He condemns him as a heretic. But he does not condemn as heretical those who teach the reconciliation of all human beings. He disagrees with that position, but he doesn't call them heretical. Uh, similarly, he also acknowledges a position which I call the intercessory universalist. And this is probably the earliest expression of the universalist hope. We find it again in the Apocalypse of Peter, and that is at the final judgment, the saints will pray for God's mercy for the damned, and he will heed their intercessions, and all will be saved. Everything changes in the sixth century. Uh, we don't really, we don't know why, but here we see uh, the beginnings of a movement against the greater hope in the Eastern church. The, the eternal damnation by this time had already, thanks to the influence of St. Augustine, become the teaching uh, of the Latin church. But in the sixth century, a group of monks in Palestine began to elaborate the views of Evagrius and Origen in ways that we would judge today not only to be heterodox, but absolutely bizarre. Uh, you just was like the New Age gone wild. Uh, these views generated serious unrest and dispute and even violence between the monastic communities in Palestine. Bishops uh, then reached out to the Emperor Justinian, uh, calling on him to resolve these disputes, to bring peace to the region. So in um, 541, Justinian sent an imperial decree to the five patriarchs, ordering them to subscribe to nine anathemas. The ninth anathema appears to condemn universal salvation. I say appears because we have so little information about the sixth century or originists. We don't really know a lot about what they taught, what we, you know, we infer from the anathemas that, that uh, their teachings are being accurately represented, but the literature has not survived. So we don't really know what that ninth anathema might have meant in its historical context. My question is, did the anathema intend to condemn the universalist views of St. Gregory of Nyssa. 
Gregory of Nyssa's universalism was well known. I cannot entertain the possibility, the thought that the emperor intended to condemn St. Gregory. The imperial uh, anathemas, and, and it's, it's important to note that these are imperial anathemas. They don't originate from the church, from a synod of, a bishop, a synod of bishops or, or whatever. They, um, that these are the emperor imposing them upon the patriarchs. Uh, the anathemas did not resolve the Palestinian unrest. So 10 years later, a few weeks or months before the opening of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, Justinian convened a home synod and presented them with 15 anathemas, repudiating the exotic views of the originists. And they are exotic, and you just need to read through uh, these anathemas to see why I say that. None of these anathemas explicitly condemn universal salvation. Not, at least not the form of universal salvation is taught by Origen and St. Gregory of Nyssa and others. Poor Origen at this council, uh, by this time he was, uh, he became the whipping boy. Uh, and he was condemned for a lot of things that he did not teach and would not have approved. After the home synod, the fifth ec ecumenical council convened. It was, uh, the bishops were summoned to discuss and condemn the, what is called the three chapters. According to the acts of that council, universal salvation, or indeed originism at all, was not discussed. The council didn't uh, issue any condemnations. Uh, the council just focused itself on the three chapters and other matters. But in the decades and centuries that followed the Fifth Ecumenical Council, it became part of conciliar lore the Fifth Council condemned apocatastasis. And that's that. But if someone says universal salvation has been condemned by an ecumenical council, then all I can do is refer them to a lengthy article I've written on the subject. I mean, the article is up to 16,000 words now. I've been working on this for four years, five years. Uh, I've read as much of the literature as I could that's available in English on this topic. And I can say um, with very high confidence that the Fifth Ecumenical Council not only does not, not condemn universal salvation, it doesn't even mention it. All right, so maybe one final question, Father Aiden. 
What would be your perspective on Hans Urs von Balthasar's book, which we've mentioned before, or you have already in the episode, Dare We Hope? There seems to be a more middle position that allows for the possibility of an eternal hell. What do you find helpful or maybe even hurtful about that position? Well, it's a safe position, isn't it? It's, uh, it's where we, where many people uh, kind of end up because why not be a hopeful universalist? Now, I, I think we have to recognize that Baltazar himself was working under dogmatic or doctrinal constraints. I mean, it's very clear teaching, magisterial teaching of the Roman Catholic Church uh, that the possibility of damnation is genuine. Uh, Catholics may not say they know that hell will be populated, but they do say and must say that it may be. Uh, so Baltazar kind of, uh, how do we want to put it? He, he threads the needle this way and said, okay, but we may, we have a, we have a duty to pray for the salvation of all. We may hope that all may be saved. And thus he, he evades the dogmatic position uh, or the definite conclusion that all will be saved. As I said, that's a safe place to be. It doesn't create a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy, at least in my, a lot of Orthodox, for example, might describe themselves as being hopeful universalists, uh, Metropolitan Callistus Ware would be the primary example. So what's my problem with that? The first thing I want to say about Baltazar's position is to note how untraditional and novel it is. Who in the past thousand years ever said anything comparable, especially in the Western church? So at the very least, we have to say that his hopeful universalism represents a very significant development of doctrine. What I want to know is why not go the next step? Why not take that next step? Baltazar, like Karl Barth, believes that we should not take that last step because we need to leave open uh, the divine freedom, which means we need to leave open the possibility of eternal salvation. But why? How is this any different than saying that in the end, God may turn out not to be absolute and infinite love? We, we come back, as always, in this discussion and this reflection to the character of God. Is or is he not love? What is it that we really believe? And I think that's why, you know, why be, an, why be a hopeful universalist if you don't want to call into question his character. Or to put it differently, and this is the way many of the early fathers would have put it, is 
eternal damnation worthy of the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's a great place for us to end today. Thank you so much, Father Aiden. Let's move into our let's move into our segment of what we're into. Father Wesley, what are you into this week? So with uh, Halloween being the past week, I was watching um, a lot of uh, scary movies and shows and stuff uh, to get to get in the mood. And um, and so I found a show, a parishioner of mine uh, recommended it on Netflix called Midnight Mass. Um, and he recommended it to me because uh, it centers around a Catholic priest and his ministry in a small, uh, small town. It's, of course, not quite what you expect uh, when you first start it, but it's uh, it was really, really well done and, and asked a lot of good uh, theological questions. Um, it had a kind of literary quality to it where the characters went on these sort of extended monologues like you would in a book, but you would never do in real life. You know, you're sitting on the couch and you have a 10 minute discussion about what death will look like, you know, in the last moments and stuff like that. So it was very interesting. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, I've just recently read a book. It's very simple, kind of long though, but it's called um, The Religion of the Apostles. And it's by Father Stephen DeYoung, who he's an Orthodox priest, but he also has a PhD and talks a lot about Second Temple Judaism and how Second Temple Judaism influences our understanding of, of the Christian faith. And I thought he, he, he does a very interesting job of, of bringing in various concepts, especially from Dead Sea Scrolls and understandings of what, what Judaism looked like in the day of Jesus, or as he says, Judaisms, that we often has this, this concept of Judaism in Jesus' day, which is rabbinical Judaism, which is really a later invention, and that the Judaisms of Jesus' day was much more multivaried. For example, they invoked angels, that the angels would take prayers to Yahweh. Uh, they had even understandings of multiple hypostases or, or different understandings of, of plurality in God that the Christians kind of didn't run with, but just saw themselves as fulfilling an older Jewish uh, theology, whereas the later Jewish theology became, in some ways, a response to Christianity, kind of a radical monotheism, no invocation of people or angels, things like this. So I don't think I agree with everything in the book, but it was fascinating, and it was an easy read for, I mean, almost 300 pages. So that's that's what I've been into lately. Not sure I recommend it, but it was it was fun to read, learned a few things. What about you, Father Aiden? What have you been into? Oh, I'm into hats. <laughs> I, I wish if we, if we were doing a video here, I would put on a couple of my hats. I, I started getting into fedoras uh, two years ago. And now that fall is here, I've been able to break them out and uh, uh, walk downtown Roanoke and, and so forth to show off my different hats. So, uh, uh, in fact, one of my friends, Father William McKeechee, has now started to call me Father Fedora. So it's, uh, I, I only wish now I'd gotten the hats earlier because then I, I could have been known as Father Fedora decades ago. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have had to become a hat person because um, my hair quit on me. And so... <laughs> Uh, I just want to protect my head, especially in the summer. I'm always trying to wear a hat and not be outside. And so, yeah, I've, I just showed my hat. If you, if we had the video of this, it's a Brixton. It's kind of a wide brim felt fedora. Oh, what do you have on now? Father? This, this is a, this is one I picked up on eBay. It's uh, I think from the fifties 
And uh, this is, you can see it's a beige hat. It's a fur felt, um, well, some moth bites, but it was only $50, so. Uh, oh man, it looks Father, great. Do you yeah, do, well, Father, do you do most of your hat shopping on the internet or do you have like a local store there in uh, Roanoke that you uh, frequent? On the internet, uh, on, on the internet. And I've had a couple, two hats now, uh, uh, custom made for me, which is very, very cool. Because uh, then you get to pick the material and the color, not only of the felt, but also the, the ribbon, the hat, band, you know, hat band and so forth. So it's, uh, I'm convinced that Western civilization fell when men stopped wearing hats. And that the, uh, the great urgent need now is for men to begin to rediscover the fedora. Amen. Take Amen. that to heart, gentlemen. Besides, besides eBay, then, where would you send uh, listeners who want to get into hats? Oh, uh, my favorite hat shop uh, and uh, internet seller would be JJ Hats in New York City. Uh, great service. They have a, a fairly good selection, uh, though the pandemic has affected all the hat sellers right now. Uh, fur felt fedoras, which is the one I... Uh, the kind of fedora I would recommend uh, are not as uh, uh, not as available right now uh, for whatever reasons, uh, supply reasons, and so forth. Wool hats are, are widely available, but they're not nearly as good, and uh, I, I don't recommend those. Well, very cool. Well, thank you again, Father Aiden, for being on the show today. I know that our listeners uh, appreciate your comments and your insights. So if people want to continue following your thoughts, Father Aiden, where can they go? Uh, my blog, Eclectic Orthodoxy, which is uh, the URL would be A-F-K-I-M-E-L dot WordPress dot com. Or just do a Google search for Eclectic Orthodoxy. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have quite a number of your articles on various topics archived in my bookmarks that you've, um, you've discussed over the years. And it's a very active blog and there's always things coming out. So I, I deeply appreciate it. Well, listeners, if you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and share us with your friends. And you can also email us as always with your feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. And to conclude this episode, we are going to pray the same prayer that we prayed in our first episode when we had Archbishop Haverlin on to discuss the classical approach to eternal damnation. And so, Father Wesley, will you pray for us this time? Absolutely. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, eternal truth, our life, we call upon you and we beg your mercy for poor sinners. Oh, sweetest heart of our Lord full of pity and unfathomable mercy. We plead with you for poor sinners. O most sacred heart, fount of mercy, from which gush forth rays of inconceivable graces upon the entire human race, we beg of you light for poor sinners. O Jesus, be mindful of your own bitter passion and do not permit the loss of souls redeemed at so dear a price of your most precious blood. O Jesus, when we consider the great price of your blood, we rejoice at its immensity, for one drop alone would have been enough for the salvation of all sinners. Although sin is an abyss of wickedness and ingratitude, 
the price paid for us can never be equaled. Therefore, let every soul trust in the passion of the Lord and place its hope in his mercy. God will not deny his mercy to anyone. Heaven and earth may change, but God's mercy will never be exhausted. Oh, what immense joy burns in our hearts when we contemplate your incomprehensible goodness, O Jesus. We desire to bring all sinners to your feet, that they may glorify your mercy throughout endless ages. Amen. Amen.